You're listening to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast with your hosts, Vanessa Weisbrod and Emily Friedner. Welcome to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast. I'm Vanessa Weisbrod coming to you from the Celiac Disease Program at Children's National Health System. Before we get started today, I want to say a huge thank you to the Walter and Jean Boak Global Autoimmune Institute for their ongoing support and partnership to make this podcast possible. Today's podcast is focused on a topic that is very important for everyone living with celiac disease, better understanding why we develop this autoimmune condition. To help dive into this topic, we have Dr. Maureen Leonard, the Clinical Director for the Center for Celiac Research and Treatment at Massachusetts General Hospital in the studio. Dr. Leonard is leading a team of researchers as they investigate how our genetics and environmental factors affect the development of celiac disease in hopes of predicting who will get it later. And they're doing it by looking at babies. As the mom of a four-year-old with celiac disease and an 18-month-old who we still don't know about, I am very eager to hear what she has to say. Welcome, Dr. Leonard. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So before we get into the study, can you talk to our listeners a little bit about the genetics of celiac disease? What do we know now, and what are researchers still trying to figure out? So we know that in order to develop celiac disease, patients must carry a certain type of gene from what we call the HLA complex. Um, These genes are called DQ2 and DQ8. And what we know is that studies to date have shown that these genes along with a family history of having celiac disease, are really the strongest known influencers of ultimately developing celiac disease. So there was some research about three years ago in the New England Journal of Medicine um, following infants from birth who have a family member with celiac disease and who had the right genetics, and they found that um, in babies that have two copies or children that have two copies of a certain gene, HLA-DQ2, um, that more than 38% of these infants had um, a blood test that was positive for celiac disease compared to 19% of patients with just one of these genes. So wow, we know a lot that. about them. Yeah. So it's a really strong um, predictor of developing celiac disease. So we know you need to have them, those genes, but we're still trying to figure out why some people develop celiac disease and others don't. So why do we hear about this handful of people who have biopsy-confirmed celiac disease but don't have either of the genes? Is it possible that those people might actually be misdiagnosed? So about more than 99% of patients with celiac disease will carry one of these genes. Um, If a patient is diagnosed with celiac disease and doesn't have one of these genes, then we'd really have to look into it a bit further. Um, It's possible that they carry a piece of one of these genes or a slightly different version of HLA-DQ2. And many times commercial labs won't necessarily, on the report, they'll say does not carry one of the genes compatible with celiac disease. So studies that have looked into these patients that don't have HLA-DQ2 or DQ8 find that most of them do have a piece of a gene or another version of the gene. So in those cases, is it important for the gastroenterologist to look more closely at the results? Yes. So sometimes you might want to have a celiac um, specialist look at the raw results from that genetic test themselves. And I think it's it's possible that some are misdiagnosed, but if 
they've seen, um, if the gastroenterologist has seen intestinal damage that is consistent with celiac disease, specifically villus blunting on um, a biopsy, and that goes away on a gluten-free diet, then you can feel pretty confident that this is celiac disease and probably further examination of the genetics might show one of these alterations that are pretty rare. Got it. So combining the genes then, what do we know about how the environmental factors um, have an impact on developing celiac disease? So we, we know that some factors don't appear to really impact the development of celiac disease. And again, a lot of this we learned just three years ago um, when there were two infant cohorts um, out of Europe. Both of these cohorts were infants that had a family member with celiac disease and that also carried certain genetics, the HLA-DQ2 or DQ8. And one of these studies looked at timing of gluten introduction. So if you introduce gluten to the infant at six months compared to 12 months of age, is there an increased risk of celiac disease? And researchers found that no, by age three or so, um, the same number of infants in each group had developed celiac disease. And then another group looked at, you know, if you look at, um, if you give a small amount of gluten to infants over time, starting at four months, do they sort of develop tolerance to gluten and will they not develop celiac disease, sort of like the peanut studies. Um, and they found again that infants that were exposed to a small amount of gluten compared to infants that weren't, the same number developed celiac disease. Did so, it make any difference if they were breastfed or if the mother was eating wheat when they were, or gluten when they, she was breastfeeding? It, it didn't. So we think breast, breastfeeding has a lot of health benefits, um, but looking at the studies, it didn't protect against the development of celiac. I'm not sure that they looked at um, whether moms were eating gluten at the time, but they didn't find any benefit um, or, you know, sort of risk to breastfeeding, but it, it didn't protect against celiac disease. Okay. Got it. So I know that the study that we're going to talk about um, is looking at the microbiome. And it seems to be like the big rage these days. For our listeners who aren't familiar with it, can you explain what the microbiome is and why it's important? Sure. So the microbiome is uh, the collection of microorganisms that live in our body. Um, it can really refer to any part of the body, but our study and many other um, researchers are focused on the intestinal microbiome or the microorganisms that live in our gut. Okay. Um, probably 10 years ago, we couldn't really study um, this, these organisms because we didn't have the tools and the tools, a few tools we had were very expensive. So there's been a ton of um, growth in this area because we now have some really sophisticated tools to tell us sort of what microorganisms are there. Um, the, the intestinal microbiome we know helps shape our immune system and it's also involved in different metabolic processes. So studies so far have told us that when there's an alteration in the gut microbiome, this can lead to the development of disease. But we're not sure just yet the exact sort of mechanism of what microbes are doing what to lead to the development of disease. 
So is the idea to then look at what's changing in people with celiac disease to try and determine why it's happening? Exactly. So we are trying to figure out what changes in the microbiome um, before celiac disease develops and also what environmental factors are present that influence the microbiome to change. Got it. So let's start talking about the study a little bit. Who can enroll in this study and why is this work important? So we're enrolling infants um, that are six months of age or less, um, so zero to six months, and they must have a first-degree family member, so a parent or a sibling, with biopsy-confirmed celiac disease. Um, and we, we know a lot about celiac disease when we think about other autoimmune diseases. We know that there are these genetics that must be present. We know the trigger, which is gluten, um, but we don't know why some people develop celiac disease at age two and others develop it at age 62. So we're really trying to understand what changes occur in the body before someone develops celiac disease. Um, and, you know, can we identify what factors that contribute to this change? Because if we can identify sort of warning signs in the body that a patient is going to develop celiac disease, then we hope that we can find ways to stop the process um, and actually prevent celiac disease from developing in future work. So is, that's why you're focusing on babies then. So you can see what it looks like before celiac disease is ever present in their bodies and then what changes the microbiome once they develop it? Exactly. So these previous European studies um, showed that in these infants that are at higher risk to develop celiac disease, that the majority um, or a large number will by age three. So we know that we can follow these infants for a certain amount of time and we'll be able to understand, you know, what's happening because we'll see their microbiome from when it's developing um, all the way through when they've developed celiac disease. That's so interesting. So do they have to be eating gluten during the study? They don't have to. Um, we are asking with questionnaires, very brief sort of um, diet questionnaires, when they, when they are introduced to gluten and other foods, because okay. one of the things that we want to the clinical studies have shown that, you know, it doesn't matter when you introduce gluten into an infant's diet, but mm -hmm. we should be able to really see, does gluten cause any changes in the microbiome? Do we see other sort of inflammatory markers when gluten is introduced? So because we have that information and we, because we have samples before someone's been before a baby's been introduced to gluten, um, we'll be able to try and understand what changes, if any, occur when gluten's introduced. So it's a long way of saying that, no, you don't have to eat gluten to be in the study, and the parents will choose when, um, when to introduce gluten into the diet. So, okay, so how do parents enroll their babies in the study? And once they do enroll, what can they expect? So um, babies can be enrolled throughout the United States, and we also are enrolling infants um, throughout Italy. And, and in Spain. So really, you can be anywhere to enroll. And we would just ask that you email us at um, cdgem.partners.org is our email. Um, or you can go to our website, cdgem.org. 
www.thepeacekeepers.org um, and get the information in our email there. So we'll send all the information via email or we can talk about the study over the phone. Um, it's really a, the parent's preference. And then so would they get once blood work and endoscopies or and would that be with their own gastroenterologist or their primary care physician? How does that all work? Yeah, so um, all questionnaires come via email, so they can complete those online, and you can even complete them on your phone. Um, all stool, we collect poop every three months for the first three years, and then it, and every six months after that, and we'll send the material to their home, and then we'll also send them all of the um, material to send it back so they can have you know, UPS come pick it up from their home and we pay for that as well. Um, so they collect poop in their own home and then we'll work with their primary care physician um, or a local lab in their area to collect the blood. And we try whenever we can to collect the blood at the same time as the primary care physician, um, if we can, so that, you know, it minimizes blood draws for the infant. If they do, do develop celiac disease, they, again, would, um, we could work with their gastroenterologist and they would have their endoscopy done um, in their, around their home. So there's no study visits. All of this can be done virtually and through the mail. That's really wonderful and a great way to get people all around the country enrolled. Yeah, it's been, it's been great. Um, and this is a great way because we're looking for a very specific population. Um, mm -hmm. And so this has been a great way. And we're asking a lot of these, of these families, and we know that. Um, and so we're trying to do whatever we can to make it a little bit easier on them, although having a newborn and, you know, sometimes other children and collecting all of this information can be tough. But these are all families affected by celiac disease, so they are really motivated to help us answer this very important question. Well, the good news is that newborns poop a lot, so it should be easy to get little samples from them, right? Yeah. The first one can be a little bit tough because it's a little bit watery, but after that, yeah, that's, we don't have a shortage of poop. <laughs> <laughs> and so if, if there are women out there who are pregnant right now listening, can they enroll their unborn babies into the study? Yes, um, and if they do, then we can um, get special samples that we don't get from all children, but um, we try to get poop at seven days after birth. And we also get um, maternal, we ask for maternal breast milk and maternal poop. Um, and if they are willing to provide it, they can. Um, we can also, as part of the study, we test for celiac disease every six months and we share that information with parents. But we also do the genetics, so we can tell you um, if your infant is at risk of developing celiac disease um, and if they're at a very high risk. And so if someone is um, enrolled before birth, we can sometimes get a little bit of the cord, extra cord blood and make that genetic determination from that blood. Wow, that's really amazing. Yeah, it's, it's you know, for... And it's really great because we have a lot of sort of controls built into the study. So if there's an infant involved that doesn't have um, the genes to develop celiac disease, they're really important too because we're going to compare infants that have the highest risk for celiac disease, so two copies of DQ2, with infants that have the sort of the standard risk compared to infants that are born to families with celiac disease but don't have the genes, so can't develop celiac disease. 
So that will give us a great way of looking at sort of how infants respond to different environments based on their genetics. Right. And if the differences in what pieces of the genes they have make a difference in when they get it. Right. And then we also will have other controls by saying, okay, this is what things looked like for this infant before they developed celiac disease, and this is what it looks like after. And did other kids have this change, and were they able to sort of, you know, not develop celiac disease, or what happened? So we're going to have a lot of information that we can share and learn from. This is so fascinating. I can't wait to see all that you publish on this. So, yeah. Looking down the road, what is the best case scenario for the celiac community at the end of the study? I think the best case scenario at the end of the study is that um, we will have identified changes or biomarkers in the blood or the stool that allow us to predict that celiac disease will occur before it does. Um, And then the next study would be implementing sort of a way to alter that. So once we see the change, um, preventing the development of celiac disease by trying to sort of fix that change um, that we're seeing. And we already have uh, PhDs in the lab working on some sort of leading things that we have from a previous study, um, trying to understand how the gut responds to different chemicals that different organisms in the gut produce. We are, we're ready to go as soon as we have the findings, um, and we're well on our way. We're doing our first analysis of um, a couple, about 30 infants or so now um, in the first six months of life to see how early environmental factors really shape their microbiome. Wow, that's so fascinating. So it sounds like you guys have so much already collected, um, and I really hope that some of our listeners will get involved in this study. Is there anything else that you feel is important to share with them about the study? Um, no, just, you know, we, we've been planning for this study um, more than five years now, and we've been recruiting for a little while, a couple of years. We have 280 out of our 500 infants um, already enrolled, so there's plenty of room left, um, and the sooner we enroll, the sooner that we'll have answers. So I just like them to know that we really appreciate um, them participating in this study, and we treat every sample um, like it's our own child, and we're, we're just excited to see what's going to come of this because so far it's, it's been really exciting. So you said that the, the parents or siblings need to have biopsy-confirmed celiac to be enrolled for the infant? Yes. Okay. So is there a way if a parent has not had a biopsy that they can, do they have to do the gluten challenge and go back and get the biopsy, or is there any other way to um, to enroll? Um, rarely. If they have blood tests that include um, a TTG, a and an EMA, or if they have blood tests, we'll review the blood tests. And um, in certain cases, we've been able to then um, collect the parents' blood for genetics, mm-hmm. and we can confirm celiac disease um, by looking at their blood tests and their genetics. Um, but for the most part, we have um, biopsy-confirmed patients in our study, but there are a few exceptions that we've made when we can see all of the blood tests and do an extra genetic test. 
All right. So if you are listening and you haven't had a biopsy, but you do have the blood test and would be willing to talk about the genetic test as well, you might still be able to participate in the study. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Leonard, for joining us today. This is such wonderful information that I know is going to be really helpful to people all across the country. I want to remind all of our listeners to check out the study website. It's www.cdgemm.org, so CDGEM, to learn more about the study. And if you have your own little gem at home, consider enrolling them in this very, very important research endeavor. I hope that everyone enjoyed today's podcast, and we will talk to you all again next time.